Good to be with you this morning. Glad that you're with us this morning. Glad to have you here. If you're joining us online, I want to welcome you as well. Good to be together. Um, I want to, I don't know if, it, I don't know if someone's going to plan to do it later on or not, but I want to quickly introduce, I'm not even sure where they are, uh, Derek and his wife Christine Bullington are here. Um, they're interviewing us for the youth minister position. So wave to Derek and Christine and uh, be sure and meet them uh, sometime today. Glad that they're with us this morning. I, I'm sure that most everybody here has at least heard of or at least familiar with the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. You know that story, right? It actually, it's an old story. I'm told it goes back to the Middle Ages. It's been retold a lot of times through the years. But it's the story of a village, Hamelin, Germany, that is overrun with rats. It is plagued with rats. And one day a stranger shows up in very colorful clothing, pied clothing, per the Old English, and tells the town, I can take care of your rat problem for a price. And the town agrees to pay this stranger the price if he can take care of the plague of rats. He pulls out a musical instrument, a pipe, from his clothing and starts playing a very shrill, high-pitched tune. All the rats come to Main Street and start following the Pied Piper as he leads the rats through town, down to the river, where they all drown. He goes back to the leaders of the town. They decide they don't want to pay the piper. They're not going to to give them the money that they agreed on. So he leaves, upset, planning vengeance. Comes back a few days later when all the adults are in church, and he takes out his pipe again and starts playing this time a very melodious, very soft, uh, pretty tune, And the rats don't follow him. This time it's the children of the town that follow him through the town. He leads them into a cave on the side of a mountain. And then the cave seals itself. And the children are never seen or heard from ever again. Really happy little tale to be telling your children as you tuck them in at night, right? And yet this tale has has survived for for hundreds of years. You know, it's, it's just a story. It's a myth. It's a legend. And yet I find it interesting that the children were so easily led away while their parents sat in church. (laughs) We've been spending some time in the Old Testament book of Judges. And you might remember that two months ago we began this sermon series. I began by focusing on the very last words in the whole book. I preached an entire sermon on the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. Spent a a sermon on the last thing that's written in the book of Judges. That's where we started. This morning, I want to end this series at the very beginning of the book of Judges. Makes sense, right? Perfect synchronicity. We start at the end, we're going to end at the beginning. But there's a verse at the beginning of the book of Judges that acts as a perfect introduction to the book, but also I think acts as a, as a pretty good summary of the book as well. It's one of the saddest verses that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. It's one of the most sobering verses that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. It's Judges chapter 2, verse 10. 
After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. That statement is made right after the death of Joshua. Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. Joshua dies. The the first judge, Othniel, has not yet been appointed. And we read that verse after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Now, I guess on some level, we can divide all people everywhere into one of two categories. Those people who believe in an all-powerful God who created the world and everything in it, and those people who don't. And I'm going to assume that everybody in this room, we all belong to this first category, right? We believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who created everything. That's where we stand. But I don't want to just believe that. I want my children to believe that. I'm old enough now, I want my grandchildren to believe that as well. I want them to know the joy and the freedom and the blessings that come in living a Christ-centered life. And we're commanded to go and make disciples. I've always had three names at the top of my list, my three children. You know, if I were to ask you this morning, what is Satan's greatest weapon in the battle for our children? How would you answer that question? What is Satan's greatest weapon that he uses in the battle for our children? You know, probably some of you say, well, it's got to be the culture, right? It's the world we live in. I mean, morals, values, they're, they're inside out. And our culture does not make it easy for parents to raise children that are focused on Jesus. Our kids are getting all types of mixed messages from, from the media, social media, the school system. I think we would all agree America's changed in the last 50 years. I've lived long enough to see some of those changes. And spiritually, I don't think we're getting closer as a nation to God. I think we're drifting away from God as a nation. Your children, your grandchildren, they're living in a different world than those of us who are adults grew up in. It would be naive of us to think that they aren't. They are forced to deal with so many things, so many temptations that that we either didn't deal with or didn't deal with at that young of an age. Uh, Things have changed. Times have changed. Or have they? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that when it comes to the spiritual battle for our children, nothing's changed. Uh, Really, nothing has changed. We've been spending this summer in the book of Judges I want you to back up a couple generations from the book of Judges, back to the time when the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. And you know the, the, the timeline here. Moses leads the, God's people out of Egyptian bondage. Uh, they see the ten plagues that God uh, sends to Egypt. They, they walk out of that situation. They come to the Red Sea. God parts the water. They walk through on dry land. They stand at the feet of Mount Sinai of Mount Sinai, they see that mountain smoke and rumble, they see Moses come down with the Ten Commandments, then Moses dies, and it's Joshua's turn to lead the people, that next generation, Joshua's generation, the children of those who who walked out of Egypt, of course Joshua did, but but the rest of that generation, they, they didn't hear 
Moses read the law. They didn't see those plagues. They didn't stand at the Red Sea and see it open, but they heard stories. Their parents told them those stories. When their parents tucked them in at night, they talked about God and what he'd done for his people. When those young girls were helping their mother in the kitchen, they talked about their their grandparents gathering manna, their parents gathering manna. Uh, When those boys helped their dads in the field, they talked about the sun standing still and the tablets of stone. They talked about the law of Moses. But then by the time you get to Judges chapter 2, verse 10, by the time you get to that third generation after the Exodus, something, something has gone terribly wrong. That verse 10, had verse 10 on the screen there. Let me add, uh, let me add a couple verses to that. Tell us the consequences. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And here's what happens when you forget about what God has done for his people. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baals and the Asherahs. What in the world happened? What happened to that third generation? What happened to those people who are living in the time when uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 10 is talking about? Their grandparents had seen God at work. Their parents had heard those eyewitness accounts of what God would do, what God can do. And then somehow by the time you get to this third generation, it seems that they are being influenced less by their parents and more by the culture. How could that happen? How could an entire generation grow up not knowing what the Lord had done for His people? How could they not know what happened just a few short years ago? Well, again, society, right? It's society. I mean, they're living in a land full of Canaanites and Jebusites and Amorites. They're all pagans. They're all idol worshipers. On top of that, their lifestyle had changed. You know, their grandparents, they were slaves in Egypt. Now, these people, they're living in the promised land. The land that's flowing with milk and honey sort of stands to reason that they'd get a little bit lazy, a little bit selfish. My opinion, it wasn't the culture that led that generation astray. Canaanites, Jebusites, Amorites, they were all there when Joshua was alive. I don't think it was the lifestyle either. That entire generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel because of one simple reason. Nobody told them. Nobody talked about it, at least not enough. Those adults, those parents, they didn't tell their children how God had led the people out of slavery. They didn't talk about it enough. They didn't tell their children how God had given them victory after victory after victory. They didn't talk about Moses enough and the law and the importance of God's law that Moses brought down from the mountain that day. They didn't do the very thing that God commanded them to do. Listen, I'm convinced that Satan's greatest tool, his greatest weapon in the battle for our children is us. Adults. Moms, dads, grandfathers grandmothers, 
who don't realize how important it is, above everything else, to tell our children and our grandchildren about the Lord. It is more important than academics. It is more important than athletics. It is more crucial than any club, any organization, any sport, any part-time job that your child might be involved with. See, the truth is, I can't blame social media. And I can't blame the government. And I can't blame the public school system. They have not been entrusted with teaching my children about God. I have. We have. And we've got to take responsibility and we've got to be very intentional about what we are allowing our children to be exposed to and what we're making sure that our children are exposed to and the truth that they know and they learn. We have to take responsibility for telling the next generation who God is and what He's done. Psalm 78. We will not hide these truths from our children but we will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. We will tell of His power, the mighty miracles He did. He commanded our ancestors to tell them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, that they in turn might teach their children. I'm sure that I have shared with many of you in some context the events uh, of March or March, uh, June 21st, 1987, because it was a pretty big life event for me. It was a Sunday evening, June 21st, 1987. I was right down the road down here at Brandon Hospital. I was standing beside my wife's hospital bed. She was in labor. Her doctor came in the room and looked at me and said, Do you want to have your first child on Father's Day? It happened to be Father's Day. And I said, yeah, I think that would be pretty neat. So then he turned at Martha and said, well, then we've got to get busy. <laughs> and at 11.57 that night, Father's Day, June 21st, my daughter was born. And I went home that night, early the next morning, and I sat at my kitchen table, and I prayed. And I remember exactly the prayer that I prayed. I prayed that God would help me and Martha, and this church, this church, that we would teach our children to fall in love with Jesus. That somehow we could teach that tiny little baby to fall in love with Jesus. And I've been praying that same prayer for 35 years. And those of you who are a little bit older will know 35 years fly by. <laughs> that, that little girl has three children of her own. She had two younger brothers, has two younger brothers who are grown men, living their own lives. You know, and I'm left to wonder what Martha and I were able to teach them and how good a job we were able to do impressing those things upon our kids. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is talking to the grandparents of the people that we were talking about in Judges. He says this, These are the commands, laws, and regulations that the Lord your God told me to teach you so that you may obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy and so that you and your children and your grandchildren, Moses is talking about those people that are going to be living in in the time of Judges 2.10, might fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all these laws and commands, you will enjoy a long life. 
Listen closely, Israel, to everything I say. Be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God your ancestors, promised you. Moses told the people, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I want you to know what I'm about to say, but I want your children to know it too. And I want your grandchildren to know it as well. God wants to bless you. Here's how he's going to do it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. The Shema, probably the most quoted Old Testament passage in history. You know, years later, Jesus would be asked, what's the most important of all the commandments? He doesn't hesitate. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. But Moses tells the people, I don't just want you to love the Lord your God. I want your children to love the Lord. I want your grandchildren to love the Lord. And then he says this, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the commands I'm giving you today. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the commands that I'm giving you today. And then he says this. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're away on a journey, when you're lying down and when you're getting up again. Tie them to your hands as a reminder. Wear them on your forehead. Write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. Two generations after Moses said that, there is a whole generation who forgot about God simply because they didn't do the very thing that Moses said, God wants you to do this. God wants you to, above everything else, teach your children, teach your grandchildren to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their strength. Those parents failed to do that while they were walking along the way. When they were lying down and getting up. When they were living life with their family. So what does that look like exactly today? What does that look like in the 21st century? Is it even possible for us to be able to pull that off in the world we live in? Let me share with you a... uh, it's kind of a silly analogy, but I think it works. Um, my son Will and his wife are here today. I didn't know they were going to be here this weekend. And I didn't tell Will that I'm about to put him on the spot. Um, but I'm going to ask Will a question, and I've got a pretty good, an- a pretty good idea what his answer is going to be. Will, what is your favorite professional football team? The Pittsburgh Steelers. The Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> Absolutely. Will is born and raised in Tampa, Florida. He's been to Raymond James Stadium many times. He grew up being surrounded by Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yet his favorite team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Will, do you know anybody who's ever played personally, related to anybody that plays for the Steelers? Uh, my brother-in-law was cousin with the Shea County. Yeah, that's what you thought, but he wasn't, really. <laughs> Had the same last name. My daughter married a guy named Townsend, and my boys were convinced that they were cousins of Deshae Townsend, <laughs> defensive back. Watch this. Have you ever been in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? In Pittsburgh itself? No. No. Never been to Pittsburgh. Yeah. Then why in the world does my son live and die with the black and gold? Why does my son love the Pittsburgh Steelers? 
because I love the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's why. And you know what? Since the day he was born, when we were walking on the way, we talked about Franco Harris, the Immaculate Reception. When he was lying down, we complained about the Cleveland Browns. When he got up in the morning, we talked about Big Ben and his passing statistics. When we were doing life together, we talked about the steel curtain. We talked about Troy Polamalu. Will has updates that he gets on his phone every time something happens to the Steelers. He knows about it as soon as it happens. He has been immersed in that team for his entire life. Of course he loves the Steelers. He never had a chance to love any other team. I made sure of that. <laughs> no, not poor kid, no. No, we stand with the black and gold. Listen, I think we all understand as silly, as meaningless as football is. Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> but if we can understand that with something like football, why don't we understand it when it comes to something as important and as urgent as our faith in God and our children's faith in God? Why does that not make just as much sense? Why don't we have the same urgency and the same commitment and the same intensity of teaching our children what they need to know about God? The writer of Deuteronomy is telling us, telling us don't you allow your children to grow up and know neither the Lord nor what he's done for Israel. Two generations later, that's exactly what they do. They allow their children to grow up knowing neither the Lord nor what he's done for Israel. We need to do everything that we can to immerse our children in the glory and the story of God. We need to be bragging about Jesus during the day. We need to be telling our children what God has blessed this family with, what God has done in our family and in our generations past during the day. We need to talk about that with our kids. We need to incorporate the things that we talk about here when we're out there with our children and with our grandchildren. Parents, you're not your kid's only chance at knowing Jesus, but you are by far their best chance. You are their best chance. And we need to commit wholeheartedly to the commands that God gives us because your children are paying attention and that window closes quickly. Take it from a guy who has lived through it. That window closes quickly. Your children are watching. I want you to watch a video. Uh, we have that video ready to go, Matt. Let's play. That's short. After every catch he makes on the baseball field, he'll look to you to make sure you're smiling. When her friends make the fourth grade pep squad, but she doesn't, she'll look to you for comfort. When she feels misunderstood by her brothers and sisters, she'll look to you for understanding. They'll never stop looking to you. When she walks down the aisle on that magical day, she'll look to you to bring peace to her anxious heart. When he plays his first concert with his new band, he'll look to your face in the crowd. When she makes choices that will break your heart, 
she'll eventually look to you for forgiveness and restoration. They'll never stop looking to you. And you can never stop. You must never stop looking to God. They don't need you to be perfect. They just need you to be authentic and offer them Jesus anyway. They need you to try your very best. And even if you fail, they need to see you rise up again. They need you to follow hard after Jesus as best you can because they will never stop looking to you. Son, I'm writing these words to you because you are and always have been the legacy I've wanted to leave. And now, it's your moment. It's your chance to leave a legacy of loving Jesus with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. They'll never stop looking to you. And that's the way God created it to be. Listen, this sermon is not meant to make anybody feel guilty. Absolutely not. I hope it's a reminder that we are not that far removed from the days of the judges. We're we're one generation away from people not knowing God, not understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for his people. And we saw how it turned out for those people in the book of Judges. What makes, it, what makes us think that it might turn out any better or any more different for us? You know, and and that, that breaks my heart because that's on us. That's on us adults. It's actually a, a quote from Dr. Seuss I've got up there. How did it get late so soon? How did it get late so soon? What are we doing? Where's our focus? We've got to be intentional. We've got to be prayerful. We've got to be urgent when it comes to helping our, our children to know Jesus. I told you that statement made in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that another generation grew up and who knew the Lord and what he did for Israel. I said that was a perfect summary of the book of Judges. I don't want that verse to be a summary of my family. And I don't want that verse to be a summary of, of this family. I'd much rather be identified with Psalm chapter 22. Future generations will also serve him. Our children will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those yet unborn. They will hear about everything that he's done. See, you parents that are here this morning with your children, I know how hard that is. I know how hard it is to get out the door on a Sunday morning, let alone a Wednesday night. You're tired, they're tired, they're grumpy, you're pretty grumpy. You feel like you've been in a wrestling match before you even get to the car. Amen. Amen. You comb their hair, they mess it up. You put clean clothes on, they spill milk down the front of their shirt. You walk to the car with a 
diaper bag and a sippy cup and a pound of goldfish crackers and a coloring book and three boxes of colors and four more toys to keep them quiet during the, congr- during the, you know, the worship service, and that's just for the teenagers. You know, forget about the kids. It's so much easier to stay at home. I get it. It's so much easier to stay at home. But listen, you parents, you are doing the right thing by being here and having your children here with you. You are doing the right thing, and God is smiling at your effort. This morning, I want all of our parents and all of their children, maybe your children have to be in Faith Lane right now in Bible Out, but I want all of our parents and all the children to stay exactly where you are, sit down, because the rest of us are going to stand up, and we're going to give you all a standing ovation. are awesome. You are rock stars. You are telling your children this is important. This is where we need to be. You are teaching your children by having them here. God is priority number one in our family. They need to be here for class. They need to be here for Faith Lane. They need to be involved in the youth group. It is going to get late much quicker than you think. So thank you. We are praying for you. We applaud you. We want to support you and help you. May his favor be upon you for a thousand generations in your family and their children and their children and their children. Let's go ahead and stand all together and we're going to sing.